We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Hey, what's up, man? Not much. Where are you? Uh, I'm in uh, uh, our friend's uh, uh, ranch at a, at a wedding um, in uh, the outskirts of Los Angeles, I guess. Oh, congratulations. That's exciting. You uh, got a haircut and a shave. I need to I need to get on my game. Yeah, I mean, new new leader in Argentina. Things <laughs> are changing. Feels like uh, time to get a haircut. Dude, I'm going to Argentina in December. Uh, it, it, uh, incidentally, for, for a week. Uh, so I'm feeling a little bit more Latinx by going. Let's let's get Mile on the pod. Antonio can do the interview in Spanish. Yes, we exactly. both can pretend to speak Spanish. <laughs> um, I mean, it would be good. And and for for those who don't know, is is it fair to say it's basically like if 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 someone with the policies of like Ron Paul, but the rhetoric of Tucker Carlson, like even more, um, you know, oh, Trump. Of, I mean, yeah, Trump. Yeah, basically yeah. Trump. Like, but he, even more than Trump. I mean, he just curses out leftists, calls them libtards. I mean, like the translations of his interviews are hilarious. Yeah, they're they're pretty good. I mean, he clearly is is more articulate than Trump, or at least in the the kind of rhetorical flourishes. I think Trump has his own very distinct style. Yeah, um, <laughs> which I think is always a good reminder that there are a lot of different rhetorical styles. There's not just like one. And obviously, certain people want to overfit to one. Obviously, Obama has a, a style. Um, arguably, any anybody who gets elected president has an effective rhetorical style. Um, but yeah, I mean, the guy. I I don't, I don't know enough about him. Like, I don't want to kind of pretend to be an expert uh, get eviscerated with the YouTube comments. But um, I mean, look, Argentina is an absolute basket case, right? It's like used to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world, r- roughly comparable to the U S or within, within spitting distance of the U S at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, yeah. Juan Peron shows up, you got to go, you go socialist, you go broke um, just series of, I think there was like this big military dictatorship where they would just disappear people. And then when it kind of liberalizes, like everybody else tries to do it, whatever, in the late 80s, 90s, um, then you just get into a series of debt crises, Uh, which is interesting because this guy is claiming, I mean, we, you know, you saw some of the stuff in the group chat. He's saying he's going to get rid of the central bank and they're going to dollarize, which uh, basic, if you're a country that kind of is a basket case from an economy standpoint, the way to reset, it's like a hard reset, is to say, okay, throw out the existing currency or, or kind of have a one-time conversion into uh, the new currency. And the new currency is pegged one-to-one with the dollar. And assuming you don't play any games like that, it, it, it can work in that now people can actually... So what, what are the, the kind of like three purposes of money? Store value, uh, medium of exchange, and unit of account, right? The problem with inflation is the store value component goes out the window. And hyperinflation only further. And so now people don't want to hold the money so that they move into kind of either a black market for U.S. dollars, which then you try to play games of like restricting exchange rates, or you move a bunch of the money, if you're a wealthy person, into hard assets or to Uruguay, which is right across the river. Uruguay, I think, is like the wealthiest country in Latin America on like a GDP per capita basis. But like basically like or, or you go to Miami, 
and and you you got to get out of the local currency and then so the game is the government tries to like keep you in the local currency because obviously they don't want the the kind of like sucking sound of all the wealth leaving the country because they're incentivized to be able to have control over the money in the printer and so the dollarization is okay we we admit we can't we don't have the ability to manage our own currency which to be fair most countries don't um in, in, at least in the current you know dollarized system in the global economy uh and and so you just say hey we're going to deal with just having the dollar which means one now the economic policy levers are controlled you know, they're indirectly controlled by the U.S., like in the sense that whatever the U.S. does is going to have an impact on, on the global economy. But now it's direct. It's like Jay Powell raises interest rates. Interest rates uh, go up in your country, too. And then they're going to be higher, right, because there's a risk risk reward thing. Um, and then what gets really hard is usually in these kind of like developing countries. And it, it's like I think Argentina is somewhere on the order of like 20th largest economy in the world. It's not a small country. It's like 50 million people, 20th largest economy. Um, and so now you can't do exports because you have the same problem that the U S has is that when your currency on a relative basis is stronger than everybody else, um, your exports are more expensive. And so rather than buying whatever agricultural products you're buying from Argentina before you now might buy them from Brazil because they're on a relative basis cheaper. And that cycle has a really big impact because obviously you just can't like shift overnight from being a primary exporter of like kind of agricultural or kind of like raw material type stuff um, up higher up the food chain to like services and, and, and kind of like high tech products. Like you just, you just can't do that. So um, obviously there's a lot more complexity to develop mental economics, but the, the harsh reality is Argentina, what I think they've had like three debt crises uh, since the beginning of the, the 21st century. Um, and now you're in like a, shit like okay like let's restart to the dollar but then that comes with that that medicine is really tough to take and i I don't know we 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 had a couple people point out which i wouldn't be surprised is like you really start shaking the tree because obviously in argentina like the elites have figured out how to make money in this hyperinflationary kind of economy whether that's through graft from the government or or kind of like having special tax breaks or whatever is necessary to keep the power structure and so if he starts trying to blow up the power structure um, he he might find himself on the other side of a, whether it's a coup or something very violent towards him because he's rocking the boat. So, yeah, I don't know. And it, it's part of this broader, just increased populism, you know, all over the world or, or Trump-esque, you know, presidents all, all over the world. We see it in uh, in in Israel with Netanyahu, we see it in Argentina, we see it other other places in, in, in Europe. Um, and, you know, you actually, would you say? Right. The guy in, in uh, uh, the Netherlands who just got elected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got some really spicy tweets. If like I don't even want to, I don't even to say his tweets. Just like go look him up, like you know, Dutch, Dutch PM or president or whatever, and and uh, just look up his Twitter. Look, look, look at what he says. <laughs> it's um, right? and, and the Netherlands is supposed to be kind of like one of these model, like oh, they all bike, climate change, like blah blah blah, and it's like look who look like the the people that um in in you know. The Netherlands have elected someone who's on the order of Trump. And the guy who called this, for me at least, is Steve Bannon. You know, zooming out, we saw how in the last couple of months, Jared Kushner's PR image, you know, among sort of uh, a certain, you know, elite has been rehabilitated by him going on the Lex Fridman podcast, him going on All In. People who've been sort of programmed to think he's evil listen to him and say, seems like a reasonable guy. 
And I think this, I think the same thing might happen to Steve Bannon because for most people of a certain persuasion, you hear Steve Bannon, you think evil. You think sort of, you know, in the same way that you thought Jared Kushner was evil. And yet if you look up his interviews that he did, and I think I might've heard this from you or or a friend of yours um, on PBS and at Oxford a few years ago, the guy sounds pretty reasonable and pretty prescient in terms of what he he uh, sort of predicted and maybe even helped create, which is populist movements all over um, and, and working class populist movements. Anyways. Yeah, I don't know if Steve Bannon was the one creating it, but I, I think it's it's seems to be a general wave, right? Obviously, yeah, Brexit falls into that. He was a part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, so the the specific thing is there are there was a front line on Trump, yes. uh, which is a PBS docu series tends to be left leaning, generally pretty good though. Um, but there's a bunch of unreleased footage. Like they only take a little bit of the Steve Bannon interviews. And I think I want to say it's like four or six hours on YouTube and you can watch them in chunks. And it's fascinating. Like you, you, anyone who wants to have like an anthropological, like what, what was it like inside the Trump campaign? They didn't think they were going to win. And then the, the transition, which was obviously really messy. And, you know, we have friends like Bology who showed up to Trump tower during that time. Like Bannon just kind of gives the play by play. And you kind of realize Bannon was done in terms of he was never going to be effective after Trump kind of started to embrace the establishment coming in in whatever reason you want to say versus the, you know, this, this guy in Argentina who is really saying like, we're going to blow up the whole thing and like, you know, throw all of these people out. They're all the same, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on. Um, and, and Bannon in this interview specifically is like, he had the opportunity to do it and he actually had the the momentum from the voter base and he didn't, he didn't, go all the way, um, which obviously can sound very scary if, if you think Trump is a threat to democracy or whatever, you know, delusion people come up with the, this stuff. But I mean, that's also Curtis, right? Like, so Curtis has a big kind of frame of this idea of the American Caesar. And before you go like, oh, Curtis is like hoping that like some right wing dictator takes over. He's just saying, use the FDR playbook, right? So it's just like, you don't even have to be right wing. Just like FDR comes in with a mandate to get the country out of the depression he blows away a whole bunch of, of cruft in, in the government, you know, threatens the Supreme Court. First hundred days, he, he gets all the stuff that he wants done. And he fundamentally changes the way the federal government works forever, right? It's like there's like a pre-FDR era and a post-FDR era. And, and the guy was basically dictator for life. Like he had been elected three times. Uh, he died before a, a, a potential fourth. And, you know, it violated this kind of like norm, right? Like we love, people love to talk about norms. We have a friend who lo- loves talking about norms and how Joe Biden somehow bringing back norms to the White House. There was a norm from Washington that you didn't, you didn't, there were like a two-term presidency and, you know, you, you, you voluntarily didn't run. It wasn't in the constitution yet. And FDR was just like, yeah, well, I'm just going to keep going. And then, and then he died. And then they, they quickly put in a, a rule of like max two-term limit. Uh, notice they haven't put that in for Congress though, right? So Congress went and put a, a two-term ter- two limit for the presidency, but but we don't have that for senators or congresspeople. Right? Um, but but on this, like, uh, you know, Dominic Cummings, like part of this kind of like right wing, but I, I think if you just step back, uh, like what, what could be the best analysis of like, why is this happening? World got globalized post-Soviet Union, made a lot of money for a lot of corporate people, a lot of financial people, um, sloshed around, you know, in a country like Russia, obviously, like the elites really benefited from that kind of like de-communist move. Like, obviously, a lot of stuff has happened in, in China. And I think we're getting to a point now where it's like, wait a second, as the average working class person uh, in any of these developed countries, this global 
you know, globalization, yes, you got cheaper stuff from Walmart, but the reality is it hollowed out your community. It like the factory that had a job that you as an, you know, an 18 year old male who didn't have a uh, college education or, nor the aptitude to go learn, I don't know, communications or whatever BS degree that people send. Like you now don't have like a, a reasonable, you know, dignified job. And like literally the only jobs left for people who don't have the kind of like uh, white collar education tend to be like more trades and things like that. And those are actually really hard jobs. Like those, those people take a real toll on their body and to do it. So people don't want to do it. So what you naturally have are immigrants taking a lot of those jobs because it's like Americans don't want to do it. And so, so, so you have this kind of like cycle of like, I live in Ohio or Indiana or whatever. And, and all of those jobs have kind of slowly moved away. And where's the, you know, the growth in the economy. There's that always that meme. It's like, Uber has no cars, Airbnb has no homes, and then there's something and it's like, this is the new economy. But the reality is all of the value from that new economy, like the, the disproportionate amount of uh, capital accumulation has happened on the coast with, with kind of like professional managerial class. People were, by the way, working hard, adding to the economy, but like that is not distributed out over the economy the same way that the, the 20th century industrial revolution manufacturing was. And then you, you have a lot of that go to Wall Street. Right. And so the, the irony of it is, or I guess, I don't know if it's irony, but uh, the other group of people who've really benefited from the kind of like growth of the stock market and all these big companies are people who have pensions and the people who have pensions tend to work for the government. So the person left out of the cold here who doesn't have a pension anymore, right? Like new, new auto workers are getting pensions the same way that they were getting before. Uh, you know, the union is kind of like this, like, really hard thing to get in. And once you get into it, like, great, you, you're, you're going to be better, better set up. And then obviously public employees, they have the best benefits and, and all this other kind of stuff. But the average person, like you work at Starbucks, you, you don't, you don't get, it's like, good luck. Here's a 401k. And we're going to do like a little pittance into it. And so then you, you start to kind of be like, wait a second, like, how does this work? Like there's a group of people on the coast who are making a lot of money. And then there's a group of people who, who kind of have this like really nice, like, Social Security Plus tier that I can't get into because I, I'm just a, a schmuck working in the regular economy, and, and I think that that's probably playing out in all these other countries where it just feels like there are people who figured out to extract money out of the system uh, in this kind of globalist system, and then and then there's the person who's like kind of the honest, hardworking person who's just like, wait a second, this isn't working for me, and it, in a world where you only have establishment politicians, the right isn't actually that different than the left. And then so you naturally attract these these Trump type figures who are just saying, blow up the whole system. And now whether they actually go and blow up the whole system, that, that is a whole other thing. But at least the rhetoric that applies and, and why why do people like the the MAGA and the, the red hats and the, the rallies? Because it's 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 like there's a version of it, it's just like it's like therapy. It's it's nice to hear someone picking on the people that you see on Instagram and, and social media that you, is not attainable for where you are. Because these people have kind of extracted this. And, and so it's like, okay, this is a big middle finger. That's why I'm going to vote for these people. It's, it's, it's my only way of actually kind of, and we've talked about this before, but it's just like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, to, so, to add more color right wing. to that. that that's what's going to yeah. happen. And, and the right wing of the uh, Republican Party of the U.S. used to be this sort of fusion between uh, a few mix of uh, a few groups, right? It used to be the evangelicals the um, sort of uh, the neocons, right? Fight the communists. Uh, but then also, you know, George Bush, you know, we need to protect uh, America, et cetera. 
um, you know, big business, you know, CEO types, um, and then also the you know the working class, uh, the the I guess the, the you know the, the white underclass. And what happened is that the interests of the big business CEOs and the sort of pro um, you know war <laughs> you know pro military types diverged from the evangelicals and mil- and so like Mitt Romney didn't re- just went left basically he didn't the the the, the CEOs went went hard left um, you know nobody's uh, like we be- we defeated the communists the war the wars in the Middle East didn't help the the right working class right if anything they were the ones s- serving in the military and so the right had this cleavage. Um, and I, I feel like that cleavage also happened um, in other pla- other countries as well, where uh, the 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 right just became this dominated by this this uh, working class, and the dream is that they can make it multiracial working class. But this working class that has been hollowed out economically, as you just described, but also culturally is is kind of disrespected, right? They're they're told that they're not. Uh, you know that they're privileged, or that they're they're the oppressors, even though they're struggling. They're, they're deprioritized at the expense of immigrants coming in, into their countries. You know, if not economically, at least culturally. Um, and so they say, "Hey, we we want someone to care about us and to say fuck those people, fuck those people who are who are um, calling us oppressors." Uh, anyways, I'm painting with a broad brush, but those are some other trends. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I think we've brought this up on the podcast before, but easiest mind-blown thing to get a, you know, kind of like squishy lib at a dinner party is who, who's, who's the poorer party at this point, right? People think of Republicans as rich people. It's like, no, like the, the rich people in this country are Democrats, right? Like the people who are educated are Democrats. Um, and, and there's a weird coalition of you have the kind of like the entire mass of educated people in the country are, are for the most part Democrats. And then there's this kind of like one group of, of kind of like the oppressed that they try to put into their camp and hold it up and say, this is the party that we actually are when the reality is it's, it's, it's far more Wall Street and McKinsey and like, and obviously not everyone has those jobs, but, but the point is, is that that is where the power centers of that party lie. Right. It, and, and the, it's, it's kind of like white guilt or whatever you want to call it. But the reality is, is if you're, if you're a working class white person in the country, and by the way, this is, this is now as exclusive because Trump increased his vote share with both, uh, black Americans and Latino Americans, because a lot of those people also feel like they're, wait a second, like, 
I, I don't want to be in, in the kind of like need to be put on a pedestal pity case. Like what I want is economic opportunity, right? I want to live the American dream. I don't want to be seen as as some like someone that needs a handout or or to be helped by some white savior. Like these these people have agency too, and so I think that's where the tack of this just general version of like I'm an average American. An average American is a Republican now, or or at least tends to to lean in that direction because. And I don't even believe that the Republican establishment, which to me feels more like opportunistic version of just like basically a Democrat, because they, they kind of fall in the same thing with a few exceptions of people who really are, you know, the true kind of like whether it's MAGA or a Ron Paul type that 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 are anti-establishment. And obviously you're seeing this out in the House where there is a small group of Republican, you know, Congress people who are able to kind of dictate how the party is is working right and and McCarthy is is the definition of the establishment and 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 has kind of been on the outs but yeah i i, I think it's just a general dissatisfaction uh because people feel like they're they're getting left behind and and i and i think that also exists on the left and i think that that's where um you know an AOC is going to be really effective but i think AOC's target is i have $200,000 in student debt I was a millennial who was t- praised my whole life of like, oh, you know, you're you're a special snowflake and all this stuff. I went and got a degree. And then like, what the hell? Like I, I was supposed to be crushing it, right? Because I've, I've always been told I've been good. And it's like, no, life comes at you hard. Like the world is a tough place. And just because you have a, you know, basket weaving degree or whatever, whatever BS liberal arts degree that you got. And, and before anyone goes and goes like, oh, liberal arts degrees are important. It's like they're a luxury. Right. So, yeah, good. You, you want to go get a liberal arts degree? Well, the reality is you either have someone paying for you. And as a society, we, we, we don't have enough money to go around and and pay for kind of like idle liberal arts degree people to, to hang around. But like that, that's where the frustration there is. And so you see that. And, and obviously they get radicalized in these these kind of like American, you know, as uh, David Sachs called them, woke madrasas. But but those are the people who feel really left out. Right. And so they're, they're the radical right and the radical left of, of like this system is not working for me. Um, and I don't know, something has to give at some point, or the other argument is actually it won't because the establishment is much closer on, on a lot of issues. They, they play it on TV that they're very divided, but the reality is things really don't change and people are just interested in Congress and in maintaining power. And, and so they're going to do the minimum to kind of placate people on the margins. And that's why they use culture war issues because culture war issues for the most part don't cost money. And, and like, you can kind of just... It's like they'd love to just talk about abortion for forever, right? Even though, like, basically now the Supreme Court case comes in, and what you have, you have all these conservative states are now voting to say, no, we're going to enshrine abortion. Like, that was a cultural issue from a while ago. We've already taken it for granted. And it turns out these evangelicals don't have as big of an issue there. But but that's, to me, why the cultural war issue always is brought up is because it's you doesn't cost anything. It's just pure politics, pure theater, when the reality, the hard thing to solve for is economics, right? And it's like, who gets the share of the money? And, you know, I, I think the left tends to say like, oh, well, we just want to take more money from people and give it out and just keep promising people more money. But I don't think the right is, has been particularly, you know, like there's been plenty of uh, excess on, on the right and under Trump. They didn't get rid of any of these real programs. It's, it's all like they fight over the IRS budget. It's like you have like a multi-trillion dollar budget and people are talking about some like $80 billion in funding. Yeah, that's real money, but like, uh, you know, or, or it's like, let's talk about Ukraine, right? Like, yes, the hundred billion to Ukraine, I would be like, let's go spend that in the U.S. But the reality is, it's not. It's it's they're taking old weapon stockpiles 
and sending them to over to Ukraine. Yeah, there's there's some other money sloshing around, and I'm sure there's corruption and graft, but the the reality there is that it actually generates American jobs, right? It's like when you go and make a Raytheon missile that's made in some congressional district where there are a few people who are actually putting that missile together so you can go ship it to Ukraine so they can shoot it at Russians. Yeah. You know, it, you know, there's this famous quote of when you're 18, if you're not a liberal, you have no heart. And if you're when you're older, if you ha- if you're not a conservative, you have no brain. It, it, it feels like there's so many uh, defectors from uh, the left to the right. Very uh, rare that it's the opposite. There, there sometimes people like Mitt Romney, et cetera, kind of get classified as left. But um, it's it, it's it's rare. And it, but it's almost like but but it's also rare that, you know, college students are, are right wing. So it's a, it's almost like a a factory line where, you know, they start out as, as left wing and so, some version of them will defect. And I feel like we're, we're seeing more defect recently, partially because we were talking about this in the group chat. It feels like it's not just the current thing anymore, but it's like the whole slate of current things. And there's so many current things you have to believe at the same time. Like you have to be pro, you know, it, like you can't just be pro BLM. You have to be like trans, climate change, Palestine, like this whole, you know, you, Ukraine, uh, you know, get Sam Altman back as opening I see like there's just a whole slate of things that you you have to uh I was just joking about the Sam Altman thing but well actually the Sam Altman one is interesting because I would argue that most of the people who would have believed the current set of things would have said Sam Altman is a danger to AI safety uh but who would they prefer back Emmett Shear no they would prefer the the Helen Toner version of it is <laughs> just shut the whole company down yeah yeah right yeah. That, that's and let the government do it yeah, yeah no, that, that's, that's what yeah, no, I I think that's accurate. I was just joking with the same moment thing, but I, I I think, but it is interesting just how, um, how much they they ask of these people to support all of these issues, and I think that's why you see the strain of like you know Dave Chappelle is pro BLM, but he's not there on the trans thing. You know, you mentioned black people and Latino people are defecting towards Trump because I think it's like there's one issue that they care about, maybe another one that they think is reasonable, but the whole slate just seems pretty hard. Well, th- this goes back to also is. One, and we talked about this with Michelle when we asked her about the news or like, I think it's really hard and time consuming to develop a a point of view on a bunch of different issues from first principles or or whatever way you want to do it. That is not just kind of like take it from a platform of like, okay, what does the New York Times say that are the right opinions? Okay, this is roughly what I'm going to pick. And it's not even like people sit down and say, okay, great. I have 25 issues that I need to have an opinion on. Like you were like voting. Let me let me just like quickly decide this. And it's 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 more osmosis. It's who you hang out with. It's it's when that current thing has a flare up. You you kind of got to. I always use the dinner party example. I don't even think people go to dinner parties. Fine, you go out to eat at a restaurant so that you can like put photos on Instagram and talk about how great you went to this like cool restaurant. It's probably more like the PMC or thing. But you go and and people are like, oh, could you believe that? Or like, yeah. And then you try to sound smart because you saw a little like you know whether it's a TikTok or something in, in New York Times. But then that reinforces that kind of set of beliefs because. It's a little bit more of actually, because you don't go to church, the way you reaffirm and reauthenticate that you're kind of like part of X tribe and mood affiliation is is by kind of reciting those things um, versus people who actually say like, okay, on each of these issues, I actually want to take the time and, and go deep. And, and it's not even like I would say like for me, I've gone deep on every issue, but I always find it interesting is like I... I I don't know, having a Wikipedia addiction or something. It's like, I feel like most issues I've spent at least an hour or two hours, like the, the big, the big issues digging around on Wikipedia. Just like, I, I kind of like want to understand the players, like how long this has been going on for click the historical context, just, just to try to get a little bit more of a, sur- the, you know, versus the surface level. And I just don't think that's an, a mainstream behavior. Uh, I do think though, what's interesting 
is to tie it into to Sam Altman. I do think that the the kind of like chat GPTs of the world as as they improve um, are going to actually make this a much more efficient exercise. Should should you want to go do it? And you can imagine, you know, the the speed uh, or the the kind of the latency will, will go down, which I actually think is a big inhibitor to it, to the point where if you've ever seen the movie Her. Yeah, of course. Where it's like, you know, the earpiece. Yeah. Um, a, a good movie with Joaquin Phoenix, not <laughs> not like Napoleon, which I, yeah. I, I'm devastated. Like I've been looking forward, you know, Ridley Scott, great director. I, I don't think I, I don't think I can bring myself to go watch it. Yeah, like I, I'll just right. I'll just be just pissed the whole time, and I'll just like it'll I'll just be hearing Antonio and my and my like brain is uh, this is just like super woke and bad, um, long housed as they uh, as they say. Yeah. Uh, by the way, someone asked me the other day. They're like, "What is a what is a long house?" Uh, fourth reading. Uh, if you just type like long house Lomez essay, like you'll you'll find it and you can read it. It's uh, it's an interesting point of view but that that's that started to creep into the uh i don't know if alt-right is the right way but like kind of like call it um dissident twitter is is what you would call that but yeah long long house is the new like uh wokeified or something like that yeah but but oh so going back to her in a world where you actually have like we could just be having this conversation and instead of listening to me blow hot air for you know 45 minutes you you can instead be talking to you know superhuman intelligence trained on all of the the books that you decide or someone says, hey, here's a reading list of like 250 books that I think are good source material. You feed that into this like custom LLM. I'm, I'm simplifying here. But then you can actually just have this Socratic dialogue and be like, okay, well, what, give me give me the, you know, the, the best argument for or against this. And you can start to have like superhuman ability of like grasping a concept and then make the decision for yourself. Yeah. So I don't think, again, that will probably be a mainstream behavior, but I, does it increase the number of people who, who really want to go deep on a lot of issues? Yeah, for sure. It'll just be a, totally. uh, you know, it'll be like having the world's best teacher tutor yeah. on, on anything that you want. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into open AI in a, in a second, but w- one last question on, on the norms part that we kind of hinted at earlier. Um, I was in a conversation with the other day with a friend and he said, Hey, the the right has been more authoritarian than than the left, M- more willing to subvert uh, the norms of of democracy uh, th- th- than the left. And you know there are obvious examples, right? J- January sixth, the sort of the, the uh, Donald Trump putting a few people on, on the court. Um, there, there, there are others. Um, do you think that that argument holds water, or do you think that they are about equal in their kind of uh, you know willingness to disrespect norms? Or, or oh my gosh. Worse. like wh- whoever said this, this is just cope. Like what, what is, so January 6th, are you really saying that January 6th is, is a threat to, m- to democracy? Like, I think a number make, of, make, make the case. Like <laughs> maybe you don't, yeah. you, you think it's stupid too, but like I, I, that, that's I, the thing. Yeah. I think, so let's steal man it. So they, they think that um, Trump, you know, uh, encouraged an insurrection and that he was, well, he, he did try to, uh, explore ways to take back to overturn the election, right? Like he acquired with lawyers. Like if, if he if he could have, he 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 might have or he would have. Is the is the claim that the left has that he he didn't he disputed the election results, which it, that in itself, you know, has a level of subverting norms. Is that accurate? Okay. So what happened in two thousand? <laughs> who, who disputed the election results? Um, 
uh, so Gore versus Bush and Bush won and people were disputing Florida, et cetera. So yeah, there, there's a history to that. Okay. I don't know so, if it's so as intense, but that, that, that seems, that seems like first shot was fired on, on the left. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can go look up Hillary Clinton. Like this isn't a legitimate victory. Like Nancy Pelosi, they have the supercut of it. Like, so we're now, what people are arguing over is the manifestation of like, Oh, this, because it was, uh, physical and it was at the Capitol and all this stuff. And then, and obviously now the, the, the current speaker is like putting the, the videos out and, and you have these people who are like in prison for 10 years or being charged with domestic terrorism. And they're like walking around with a, with an iPhone taking video of the Capitol. Um, what, what, what happened in 2020? Like where, how many people were arrested for, for all the stuff that happened in the summer of 2020? Um, but that was for the right reasons. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But <laughs> mm, so now we're really getting into it. So it's actually not about threat to democracy. It's it's if you are doing it, and I don't like your political beliefs. It's 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 a Russell conjugation. Threat to democracy versus I am I am protesting something that is righteous. And so that is where, like, let me be super clear. If you break into the Capitol, you should suffer the consequences of of whatever the the laws on the books are for there. Now relative to the sentencing guidelines or like how aggressive you're being that's a that's an argument for other people but my my sense is like the the thing that people want to seize on is it's just it's mood affiliation it's the other side is bad so everything that they do i am going to and and to use the other one russell conjugate the you know i report you docs like it is always just take the other side and and there's actually a pretty great um there's a little cartoon I, i should find it where it, it's it's um it's got like two castles and then and they kind of go down to the sea and then you have like the ocean and it just it, it's it's just like a mirror of like everything that you do versus the other side and it's like you are righteous versus they are bad and it's just a, a massive kind of example of a Russell conjugation but like just just always just try to flip it around and be like okay what what how could I play it the other way if I was completely dispassionate and neutral right like a threat to democracy would be Trump got. Uh, the, the the Joint Chiefs of Staff or, the, you know, multiple major generals that control actual military to, uh, I don't know, like march on the Capitol or like do, 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 do something uh, uh, that that actually is like, OK, like we we have examples of this like coups. Right. And um, like that, that is like someone living in history. And, and it's like just just, you know, to take the Israel situation for a second, it's like. Israel is dealing with like a genocidal terrorist organization that killed 1200 people, took 200 plus hostages. Okay. That is a threat to their country and they are, they are dealing with it in the way they view appropriate. Right. Um, a bunch of people who are kind of like LARPing as whatever, who like go into the Capitol, what are they going to establish some like power base or Trump was now going to be able to stay in like which side the, what did the FBI have been on or, or the CIA or like, so, so none of that, I have yet to hear like a credible argument where it's like somehow as a result of January 6th, Trump was going to be able to, to stay in power. He couldn't even get his vice president to do anything. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do agree. If you had to steal, man, the argument for why the right has just been more subverting of norms, perhaps over the past 
you know, since 2016 in general, what might you say? There's certainly like more sloppy about it. Certainly tr- the Trump era, um, you know, with, with the, the, the sort of, you know, nepotism, although of course Biden has that too, but the, um, you know, in like voting stuff, people were concerned about a gerrymandering voter ID. I mean, these are kind of, you know, buzzwords. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> nepotism? Well, we're getting uh, Ivanka and... How is Trump nepotistic <laughs> in, in, in his administration? Josh Kushner? Uh, Jared, Jared Kushner and... Uh, uh, Ivanka Trump, um, you know, with senior. Oh, so so kind of like John F. Kennedy having his brother be the attorney general. Come on, like it's just like there are always examples of this, and it's like we just memory hole the ones we don't like. But if, but if you had to steel man the argument for 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 wh- where the right has subverted, nor- maybe Trump putting three three judges or or blocking the other judge the, the, through a democratic process, like he followed the constitution. What people just got mad about is that it just so happened that uh, someone didn't retire. Uh, what is it? Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not retire as a result of, um, you know, Obama saying, hey, like, you're old, like, this is a political thing. And she said, no. So good for her. Like, she has that right. That's how the Constitution allows it. She doesn't go and retire. Scalia dies. Obama was like, great, I want to put a person in. Well, guess what? You need the, the Senate to confirm. Yeah. That, that's how the Constitution works. But what about... Uh, and, and you don't think, you do not think the Democrats, of course they would. if given the opportunity with of Trump, they would. Would, have, would have blocked, right. especially in the RBG. Yeah, of course, of course they would, would have. Um, so so, so that, okay. that, it's like, we're, we're just arguing based on motor yeah. Yeah, sure. okay, like, But okay. what about Russia and Cambridge Analytica? I'm just joking. <laughs> I mean, Cambridge Analytica is a fake story. Steel dossier, fake story. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's just, it's funny how... From day one, he's been labeled a threat to democracy. Uh, is just like, yeah. How I don't know how I don't understand how he's a threat to democracy if he was. Democratic. But 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 here's here's the thing about Trump, the the delivery and how he interacts. Not my taste. Yeah, no, he's. But like obviously that drives it drives liberal people crazy, <laughs> yeah. right? But look at the policies. It. it, it you have the all in guys who are going, actually they, they seem like, so it, it's people, you can't get people on the left to actually have a very concrete set of things. That's like, these are the things that Trump did that were bad outside of how he interacted. And, and I think that's legitimate in the sense that you find that distasteful, deplorable, whatever, whatever version of it is, but guess what? That, that goes away. He, he you know, so much of what Trump stood for the moment Biden comes into the office, he signs it away with executive orders. Right. And by the way, that will happen again because no one wants to do the work to actually get things passed in Congress, which I would actually say Biden, whether I agree with those things uh, that he's passed, he's gotten more, I think, big bills passed than Trump did. Right. And and, and so partially because he had been in the Senate before. Um, but yeah, like Trump didn't get rid of Obamacare. Yeah. What, what are the different biggest policy differences between Biden and Trump? Because some people say that Biden is kind of like Trump light or something in the sense that, you know, he's, he's in some ways he's gone heavier on, against China. He, he's, you know, done some energy stuff as well. The, the, um, there, there are places where there's some, you know, he built, he's building a wall, I guess. <laughs> there's some uh, overlap. Um, what do you think are the biggest policy differences? Well, ignore the executive orders because those just get signed away. So you can just throw away all of Trump's. You can throw away all of Biden's. To me, that's the mood affiliation version. Yes, they exist for the time that you're there, but like it doesn't matter. So Biden has passed a big stimulus bill, which caused a bunch of inflation. Um, 
right? No, no structural improvement to the economy, gave a bunch of people money they didn't necessarily need at the time. Like, yeah, they benefited from it, they spent it, but then then we had inflation. Uh, so it's made it much harder for people to actually like buy a home or anything like that. Um, Chips Act and IRA. Right. And and so Inflation Reduction Act, it's just basically a big spending bill, ton of money for clean energy. So that will be a lasting impact in that it will increase the percentage of the U.S. like energy mix to carbon free electricity, which actually I, I think is a good thing. Um, I would like to see more nuclear, but um, I think everything I've heard, though, from people who are the, like looking to make money off this thinks it's just a bonanza in terms of like ability to just, you should be starting, you know, these companies to go after these huge dollar amounts that the government is basically willing to, to um, support. And so I think, I think that is a, um, you know, the, good or bad, whatever you want to say. I, I think generally it will be better for us in the long term in, in that it'll just help bring the cost of clean energy down the cost curve. It, probably not the most efficient spending. And I think the CHIPS Act that we've talked on this podcast before, I think it is sounds good, but the reality is like what matters is the the people who actually work at TSMC, and so that's training, that's that's acquired knowledge on the job, and so to the degree that that knowledge transfer happens, we'll see. And if like you've got Chuck Schumer trying to build a plant in Syracuse or Rochester, New York, like is the talent density going to show up there? I, I don't know. I, I I think I I remain skeptical of it, but I think it's a good general policy is like we should be onshoring or at least having them in Mexico, these kind of like key dependencies, right? Like I think it's a huge weakness for us and I, I'm generally pro Taiwan, but like I, I think it's a huge weakness for us to have a huge dependency on a country that is much closer to China and China's whole military strategy is about preventing us from being able to support in that case. I think the other big thing with Biden on the foreign policy side is I think he's gotten us involved in Ukraine indirectly. Um, I don't know. I, I I think that's less of like a, you know, Sachs, I think gets really into this thing, but I think it, it's kind of pulled back and it's a little bit of a stalemate there. And then obviously he's been super pro-Israel, which I'm, I'm like personally in favor of, but I think his Iranian position has been bad. And, and then I think he's stepped it up on China, similar to Trump. I think the only material difference would be, we, and we talked about this before. I think Russia still probably goes into Ukraine with Trump. I mean, the counterfactual, you can't play it out. But let's say he he does get reelected and he comes in. I would imagine Trump is is a little less pro-Ukraine, but it's not like he's going to go embrace Russia. I mean, maybe. And uh, we'll, we will find out if he gets reelected. But I think uh, he'd be pro-Israel, obviously. And he would be anti-Iran. So it's like one or two minor differences. Overall, it's it's a relatively... You know, Trump. Trump's big bill. The only real meaningful thing he did was was a tax cut. Yeah, which is a spending bill. Yeah. Well, we'll get into election coverage uh, next year as it gets closer. But I hung out with Naval the other day, and he was saying that uh, he thinks it's going to be hard for Trump to win because Democrats have figured out uh, mail in ballots and uh, youth turnout. Um, and and with those two things, um, you know, are are the youth really going to come out to reelect Biden? <laughs> Certainly not for Biden, but they might come out against Trump. Right. But there's a big difference between Trump is in office. You've been dealing with him every day for four years. You've let that pressure build and you want to get rid of him. And you have a bunch of people in the middle of the road who who kind of think Biden, uh, Trump didn't do a good job with COVID, which I think I think is a very fair criticism. And so 
I, and how motivated are you going to get those people? Because I, I don't look look at the polls. Like the, the fact that Trump is leading in in all those swing states, it, like Trump uh, does uh, underperforms in polls, right? Like, and so I think this is an observation. You know, someone in the group chat made is like it feels feels different now. Is that it's it's acceptable to be pro Trump, right? Um, like whereas before it was cancelable. Like you would you would just be completely ostracized for saying anything pro Trump. And I and I think I think Biden. The, the reality is he's old and, and, and I think even the staunchest left-wing person knows that and it's embarrassing. And, and so they're, they're kind of holding their nose and saying, well, at least the staffers are doing what I agree with or, 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 you know, the policies match. But part of electing that position is, is you, you actually want someone who feels functional there. And I think that that's going to have a huge, huge impact. I, I think moderate people are going to look at both and go, okay, yeah, Trump, Trump, just going off. I mean, he hasn't been on Twitter, which I actually think has been really good. So it's like everything you get from Trump is indirect, whereas before it was just like front and center. I, I think they might warm back up to him because they realized that Biden wasn't, Biden wasn't the adults didn't come back in the room. Like you know, instead, you got you know twenty nine year old Ivy League woke staffers who, who who've tried been kind of doing all this crazy stuff. And 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 the, the only time an adult showed back up into the room, or at least you you really think that Biden got back in control, or at least some of the older school people, it was with the Israel issue. Yeah, because everything else is tacked way more woke. Yeah. Um. Well, well, well said. I, I want to segue into the OpenAI and Sam Altman to to debrief. Uh, for for people who missed it, I'll give a very quick r- rundown of events. So so basically, uh, and you know, you, and people should listen to our, our last episode about it. But la- last Friday, uh, there's all of a sudden a quick announcement fr- from OpenAI saying Sam Altman is uh, is being removed as CEO. He hasn't been consistently candid. There's kind of this vague insinuation of wrongdoing. People start in, you know in, uh, thinking that it's either financial uh, mismanagement or or um, sort of unethical behavior, either financially or personally. Um, people are against Sam. People are comparing it to SBF. Within a few hours, the narrative changes and Sam is an EAC hero. <laughs> um, and, you know, who's being, uh, there was a coup by the Doomer board, um, you know, two EA w- w- women and, uh, you know, Ilya and Adam D'Angelo um, to, to get Sam out. And there's a call for investors and all, all the who's who of Silicon Valley, you know, Paul Graham, Ron Conway, all, all these big Mercer Mayer, et cetera, dozens of others, Brian Chesky to get Sam back to, you know, founders should run their company, et cetera. Um, so investors start putting, Microsoft apparently didn't even know about this. They're, everyone's putting pressure on the board to let Sam come back. The board holds strong for a little bit, says Sam is not going to come back. Sam tweets that he takes a, a job at Microsoft or, or you know, teams up with, with Satya Satya says, hey, we're we're letting uh, Sam and Greg start a, uh, a, a company within OpenAI, sorry, within Microsoft. They'll have all the resources they need, et cetera. Um, but then the employees uh, en masse, uh, almost 98%, I believe, signed this pe- petition or, or this uh, signed this uh, document saying they will leave OpenAI if Sam is not reinstated. Oh, and in the meantime, Emmett Shear, the former CEO of Twitch, was was interim CEO of OpenAI for all but uh, you know 48 hours. Um, and then the, the combination of the employee pressure plus the investor pressure plus the press just you know writing fawning pieces of, of Sam Altman and 
everyone is damning the open AI board because the open AI board is, has mum. They haven't said anything. Whereas Sam is, is uh, masterfully navigating the, the situation and, and the whole Silicon Valley is coming in favor of Sam. Uh, so in, uh, basically the board caves. Ilya tweet, uh, who's on the board tweets out, uh, he regrets his, his actions. Um, and then there's this sort of big negotiation between the open AI board, um, of which, uh, I believe is Helen and this other woman and then Adam and Adam is a, is a friend of mine. I think he's very high integrity, very competent. Um, I, I don't know the rest. Ilya seems like he's, uh, you know, ha- has, uh, sort of, uh, you know, good intentions. And then the other two are, are deep EA devout types. EA is destroyed basically after, after this. A- anyways, the, the board caves and they come to this uh, sort of negotiation where uh, there's a re- Sam is back as CEO and there's a new board. The The board does, you know, Adam D'Angelo stays um, and there is uh, Larry Summers joins and Brett Taylor joins. Um, so it's a three, three person board at the moment. Um, and, um, and also they agreed to launch an independent investigation into what, what happened with Sam, because the board didn't come up with any sort of legible reason for why they let him go, which I think is the biggest failure that that they could have possibly had. Um, so there's going to be independent investigation and, but also of why the board did it and the aftermath. Um, and there's a lot of remaining questions. Who's going to be on the board? Is Sam going to get on the board? Is is Greg going to get back on the board? Is Adam still going to be on the board? Is Microsoft going to be on the board? Does the for-profit have any board representation? Why is Larry Summers? It, it's it's almost like the board went from EA nonprofit to DC corporate uh, or you know the DC establishment, right? Larry Summers establishment establishment gets. Um, so um, yeah, craziest corporate drama of uh, certainly my, my lifetime. I, I was glued to it for, for four days. So many side plots, you know, all, all this, uh, you know, hidden motives, high, you know, all, all these is it was like a whodunit kind of thing. And we still never really found out what exactly happened. Um, but uh, anyways, that, 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 those are my quick uh, recollections of it. And any, anything you'd add or edit or any, any reflections from your end? Yeah, I think the, employees all willing to resign that that's the seal of the deal and there was that cringe thing open AI has nothing without its people but it's true in that okay cool like you you lose all the talent that they've put together there and have it go to microsoft i, I think an adam d'angelo looks at that he's he's an experienced tech tech person from facebook and quora and he's like, okay, like this is, we, we've lost. Basically, Sam has the allegiance of, of the people, right? Like if you just put it in coup terms, the, the military sided with this general, even though the other ones thought that they had had the support. Um, a, <laughs> I'll, I'll say it anyways. I find it to be deeply ironic that Larry Summers, who was canceled for saying that women aren't as good at ma- as math, replaced the two women on the board. Um in a company that is basically just math. Um, so just, just leave that as a, a, uh, why Larry Summers, I have no idea. I mean, he, obviously he's, he's on, I think he's on the board of square and, um, this is what you do with boards is you put stuffy, stuffy old people on them. I, I think the interesting thing is this line that came out from this, this, this Helen Toner woman, Toner, Toner, Tomer, yeah. I forget, uh, the Georgetown person who, uh, we have friends who think this is a CCP asset, <laughs> given that her Twitter bio says China plus ML, which, um, uh, you know, that that is definitely a conspiracy theory. But the 
line she kind of had or that came out is that she thought it was completely consistent with the the charter of the company to let OpenAI self-destruct if 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 they felt like they were not responsibly building AGI. Um and I think that that that's going to have big repercussions in the sense of that charter, that board, you know, this nonprofit for-profit structure and and what like what is AGI? How are you defining it? Like how, how do you define those milestones? I think there's going to be a lot more whether that comes out publicly or not. I think internally there's going to be a lot more governance around that because that seemed a little uh, too squishy in this case for for basically what ended up happening. But my sense is um, it is interesting. I think that they've said that they want to increase it to nine people. So getting to a board, I mean, of course, they're going to go add more women. I think they'll probably add someone of, of you know, of color or, you know, maybe a Latino. Um, but the thinking is like you need you need a bigger board of people that have a, a, a variety of whether it's shareholders or stakeholders. I think that that's an interesting uh, term that's popped up. I, I've always talked about this thing where if you if you say the word equity to a person, it's a nice Rorschach test. This is like if you have a capitalist, equity is stock options. And if you say it to a, a socialist, it's, uh, you know, equity as an equality of outcome. Um, and I think same thing. So there are holders of, of these things. There are shareholders, which is the capitalist version. And then there are stakeholders for the, the uh, more DEI inclined. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's just incredibly impressive in the sense of the kind of like loyalty that both Sam and Greg, right? Like it, it's, a, there's a package there uh, to think that those really talented people were going to go and work at Microsoft. I mean, clearly it was a negotiating tactic in that sense, but to rally, I think it ended up being like 97% of people that that's really impressive. Now the one I'll give them all credit, yeah. like in terms of that, that's brave to do or whatever. When you have a $90 billion or $85 billion yeah. tender sitting on the table, I money, think, yeah. and, and that's all going away. If you stay, uh, pretty magical what what the financial incentive will do, and, and, the, there was no and so I don't think you're ever going to pin those people down. But yeah. like, if you, if you've been counting, like, okay, um, you know, this is how much on a spreadsheet, like my stock options are worth. I get to sell this much in the tender. I can go buy that house in San Francisco. I can go buy that house in Tahoe, uh, and then have that on a Friday afternoon disappear. I think you're going to be pretty motivated to do whatever is necessary to get the person back in so that that deal can actually go through, which now it sounds like it's going through in, in December. And, and the genius of it was that it wasn't binding. I mean, this, this is the, I think the first like current impl- uh, thing coup, like you could imagine if Travis was let go today, that something similar might happen where employees get together and say, Hey, our company is going to be destroyed. If not like, look, look what happened to Uber after that. Like we need, we should do this petition where it's actually not binding. So we actually don't have to leave um, if, if it doesn't happen. And everyone's going to sign it. So we're not getting individually in trouble. It, it's it's so genius. And then also, they had a BATNA with Microsoft, or the, or the appearance of a BATNA. People didn't want to work at Microsoft necessarily, but you get the same uh, jo- a job and the same uh, compensation. Uh, someone tweeted out, uh, Kevin Scott, the CTO of Microsoft, tweeted out that offer. I mean, it's, it's just incredible sort of leverage shift. Like Sam at Friday had no leverage. He'd just been kicked out. And, and over a weekend, he had all the leverage. It's just masterful. Right. And and this goes back to what we said in the episode and myself being maybe a kind of like recent convert to uh, the Church of Sema in the sense that, I mean, he's extraordinarily talented. How many people could actually do that? Right. And, and, and actually, it's again, Paul Graham had identified it as just like the ability to negotiate 
whether it was at Looped or YC or any of these things, he's just a, he's a masterful uh, negotiator and and and, and business person. Um, so I, yeah, it is worth mentioning that it, it was a gamble. It was a gamble that paid off because if if he wasn't reinstated as CEO, then a lot of equity value would have been killed, right? Like if employees did in fact leave, then OpenAI would be worth way less. Whereas he could have just, you know, gotten fired. What most people do, like what did Travis do when he got fired? I wish him the best, you know, you know, just go quiet. And uh, the company will degrade over time maybe, but it didn't, it won't degrade all at once. Like it wasn't like a, Travis wasn't like, you know, come, it's either me or them. So there's a, you know, it, it paid off, but there's another world in which it didn't pay off. There were, there were several steps along that, you know, if the board just had a good reason. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think we've, we've heard from folks we know who are kind of involved in boards and, and just this kind of stuff is that there's, there's a lot more behind the scenes and that we just think of it as like, okay, you should just tweet it. Cause he he's, you know, the other guy's tweeting when the reality is there's a lot of legal liability related to this stuff. And, and you have to be kind of careful. Um, sounds like we're going to get something. It doesn't seem like Emmett Shear got any information. He, he said it as much. Um, so if there's an independent investigation, we're going to get something. I wouldn't be surprised if you end up having um, some federal investigations. I, I think I saw one news story where maybe it was in the Wall Street Journal. It's like the, you know, the uh, attorney, um, U.S. attorney in Manhattan reached out. Like, he's like, oh, malfeasance, great. Like, this is SBF 2.0, like another person to hang my hat on. And uh, nothing so far, but the IRS is it has a little egg on their face in the sense that if now people are questioning this nonprofit to for-profit structure, they, they at least have to do a CYA and maybe something turns up or, or maybe there's a a settlement that they have to do in terms of like, hey, some of the, the upside of this company now needs to actually be paid as taxes because of the way it was converted. I, I mean, I have no idea other than the way I've experienced government um, you know, as it relates to crypto is when something happens in the headline, it's just like, it attracts everyone because they don't want to have their boss or, you know, up the chain saying, Hey, what, has the, has this agency looked into this issue? Like the, the, this seems potentially scammy or whatever. And so it, it's a very reactive culture. And when it reacts, it reacts very fast. Um, totally. strictly as a CYA, right. And Although it was done by men, one thing I want to say is this, this open AI situation in some ways has been very feminine. It's kind of a meta, I just want to make some meta commentary. I mean, the language that they used to fire him, you know, it hasn't been inconsistently candid. They couldn't even come up with any specific reasons. Um, you know, he, he uh, apparently, um, you know, fired right away, right? App- apparently, uh, Ilya partially resigned because Greg Brockman's wife um, sort of went to him in tears and, you know, sort of appeal emotionally appealed to him. And, and, and that got them, you know, it, um, sort of, we use our longhouse, like Sam almost got longhoused, like the whole thing, you know, the hearts, the employees, <laughs> all the heart. I mean, the whole thing just felt very uh, feminine in both the effective uh, feminine ways and also in the, uh, you know, sometimes uh, sort of drama in, induced um, feminine ways. But it is just interesting to get a look at the kind of aesthetics of how, sort of the biggest corporate drama of, of our lifetime has, uh, you know, has played out. Yeah. I mean, the question is, is like, 
is that just corporate America at this point, or or is this the employee base of Silicon Valley? I, I don't I don't think of like as much as people love to label Silicon Valley tech bros. I think any sufficiently large organization tends to end up. I mean, it's HR. It's it's um, you 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 don't have the full agro male tendencies as much as the media likes to play it out. Um, you know, there's a lot of consensus building. And I don't think of that as like a particularly consensus building to me is not as as, as male male uh, coded put it that way. I think there's a lot more dis, up uh, direct disagreement versus I think of of you know female is is a kind of behind your back or or kind of you're building behind the scenes of, of disagreement versus men tend to just confront that. Um, men don't confront plenty of other things, but my sense is, yeah, I I, I don't know, I yeah. Of course, uh, generalizing w- w- wildly here, but I actually do want to segue because to, to or, or jump on that because you know people were there was this discourse of what if Sam was a black woman would he be you know seen b- back as CEO or kind of the discourse around the women leaving the board members and it's important to have a diverse board um, to be representative of a population and uh, our friend Balaji uh, does this viral quote tweet where he says hey you know fifty percent of the country is Republican should boards have Republicans on them if they're trying to be representative of the population and represent different perspectives, because that, that's typically the reason why people will, will say we need diversity, right? They'll say, Hey, it needs to be representative of population and it needs to, we need to have diversity of opinions and perspectives. And how can we, if half the country is female, how can we not, you know, sell to females appropriately if we can't, if we don't have them on the, on the board or if we don't have them represented, but then when you bring up Republicans, they'll say, Oh, but Republican is, is a choice. Female is not a choice. To which the counter to that is, well, what does it have to do with the reasons you wanted diversity, right? <laughs> um, representative represent of the population and different perspectives. And of course, Republican has a, a different perspective, but still they they won't agree with it. And it's just, I don't I don't think that you should have 50% Republicans. It's just funny that the act, the log, it's a Mott and Bailey. The logic that they state is not the actual logic. It's, it's about sort of this, um, you know, getting rid of bigotry or whatever, uplifting marginalized, you know, groups, but only groups that they see feel are, are, are marginalized. Yeah. I think it's a misunderstanding of the, what a board does. Like, I think like people think of boards as kind of like how many people have interacted with boards, especially boards of, of big things, large organizations or, or big, big dollar numbers. Um, boards don't, don't like think through like product strategy or like at a very high level. It's a little bit of like the CEO comes and says, Hey, this is the direction we're headed. You might get a few questions to kind of like probe, but ultimately the the CEO makes the call. The board's job is to hire and fire the CEO who, who then hires the management team. Right. And then there's a bunch of legal stuff that boards do, right? Like if, especially if you're a Delaware C Corp now this is a nonprofit, so it's a different entity, but it's, you, you have, uh, you know, you, someone on the audit committee and, and like, you have to put your name next to these financials that they're not fraudulent, like that this is Enron. So that's, that's liability. Um, they determine the kind of highest bands of compensation, right? So you, you have to think of the structure as first, it starts with shareholders, which a lot of times in a founder led organization, in this case, Sam doesn't have any shares, at least that's what he says. Um, shareholders pick the board which then hires the management team. And I think sometimes people with Silicon Valley think of it as like, oh, well, because startup starts founder and CEO, and then they tend to be also, they have board control or they have the chairman of the board or they have super voting shares or 
they have a, a board seat that has to vote with them. There's all these complicated legal structures. But but basically, since Google, um, Google is interesting in that it was like kind of the first mainstream in, in Silicon Valley of like these super voting shares for the founders, which allows them to maintain control of the company, right? Because they, they can ultimately choose who's on the board because th- like a board is selected by the shareholders, right? And then Zuck took it a step further because uh, Zuck never got replaced as CEO. Right, because the Google founders were still in the era when, oh, okay, time to turn the company into a real thing. Let's go hire Eric Schmidt, who had been a CEO. And then everyone since Zuck has basically followed along the line of like, you start the business as the founder and CEO, and you control the board, and that's just the way it works, right? It's like Airbnb, uh, Brian Armstrong, like just just pick all these kind of like big. The, typically, that's how it works. The only time it doesn't is if you end up having to raise enough money, uh, just because your business needs more and more money, like that you have to kind of sell off these board seats and then potentially you lose control. But Travis was in control of the board when he got pushed off at Uber. That was a, I don't know if you call it voluntary, but it, but it ultimately was a decision he made versus like a technical legal maneuver. In the case of OpenAI, at least my understanding is this was a, you had six people on the board. Sam had to recuse himself uh, in a vote related to the CEO. Although it's still weird that they didn't have to have a full meeting first before to discuss it. And then they could outvote uh, and it seems like Ilya, at least at the beginning, went along. So it was like a 4-1 four, four, if Greg had voted, but it didn't matter. And so they just made the decision. But that that, that is actually the, the role of the board is to hire and fire the CEO and then put their name next to the the kind of financials and, and legal liability for the company. Why did Travis get, like, uh, do we know why, why, why Travis ended up giving, he, he caved? I think his mom had just passed away and it was like the company was just going through all this media stuff. But I I, I don't actually know the the real, real story. I, I know a few people who could probably tell it. I don't think they would want it on a podcast, but um, I think it was they hit him at a low point. Um, his mother died in a very tragic way. I think it was like a boating accident or something and and or maybe cancer. No, no, I, it I was forget. a boating accident. Yeah, it was very he tragic. Just lost a couple, yeah, it's really, really sad. And, and so... I think he was like in a hotel in Chicago and it was like Bill Gurley and Matt Kohler convinced him to step yeah. down. And, and so maybe I, I, again, I don't want to speculate more than that as a, other, but I'm, I'm almost certain that it was a, he was in a founder control position and it, and he just, he stepped yeah. down because he thought it was for the best of the company, but going back to the diversity thing. So in that world of like, we want to sell to like blank, it doesn't matter because the board, all the board is doing is picking the, the CEO who hires the management team that dictates the strategy. So yes, that's an important thing. But like, I, I, I don't agree with like this, like, oh, the more diversity you have in the board, the, somehow the decision gets better. Because if, if anyone's ever tried to hire executives or like, it's not like you have an unlimited pool of people. So there's like usually call it, you know, five to 10 people that are seriously considered. And then you get to, so at that point, it's like, yes, there are going to be some marginal differences, but, but the pool is the pool of people interested that are qualified and there are not that many. So if anything, it's, it's more about what I think people are trying to accomplish with all these kind of like, you know, and then the California has this thing and Elizabeth Warren wants to have it in terms of like public company boards is they want to feel like other people are sharing in power. When the reality is the most power resides in the people running the corporations, right? So if anything, it's um, 
it, I don't, I don't know how effective this has been for the NFL. I imagine it like kind of not, but the NFL has a Rooney rule, right? So it's, it's every head coaching position. You have to, uh, interview a, a black guy, but, uh, uh, you know, underrepresented minority for a head coaching position before you can hire someone. And then that that's been in the NFL for a while, but that is like, I'm not, I'm not advocating for that for the CEO, but that, but that is actually the, the more impactful thing is if you were to have more CEOs um, of these companies be from a variety of different backgrounds, but then that's precluded on like, you have to have people qualified and, and to be qualified to be a CEO. If you haven't started the company, is right. you have to have large org management experiences. So then it's just a function of like how many people yeah. are out there. So, so I, I, I understand what people are trying to accomplish, but that is not the way to yeah. go accomplish it. And um, that's it. They are trying to do it at all levels, right? Put, putting the board thing aside, the diversity of course has been this, you know, longstanding sort of activist um, sort of, you know, movement to um, sort of equalize the representation among different groups in, in, in tech and what I, what um, sort of I just find interesting about it is they they can't say the real reason. The real reason is um, sort of because they think the, the, it's fair, or you know, the world is a better place when, when this happens. But the sort of the wedge reason, or the mot to the bailey, is the hey that it, you know it makes teams better because you have different perspectives and because you're representative. But when you find another group that also has different perspectives and is representative, they don't like that. Because you're, they're not, you're not born that way. And like, what does it have to do with that? Nothing. But it's because it's it's about also this other reason, which is sort of making the world more fair and, um, you know, getting more women or underrepresented minorities does that, whereas getting Republicans does not. Although, of course, they are also underrepresented. <laughs> um, and and, um, and it, it's just, it's interesting because it, it lays bare the sort of intellectual bankruptness of the, of the idea. And they would be more honest about it, but if they were more honest about it, then people wouldn't, um, teams wouldn't buy it as much because teams want to do things that are in their self-interest. And so it, it's, you know, incumbent upon sort of people who are pushing sort of, um, you know, social justice issues to make them in their own capitalist self-interest. And that's why they try to conflate or combine these issues. But this goes back to something we started the conversation on in terms of the globalist approach and and the tack of big business away from the Republican Party, right, towards being much more on the side of the Democrats. It, it's the, you know, every time there's Pride Month, it's like all the, the Fortune 500 change their logo to Pride. It, it is, we do not want to piss off anyone. And what ends up happening is they end up pissing off the right, which I think that there's starting to be blowback on that, Bud Light being an example, where it's like, oh, actually, we should try to just avoid, like, the, the self-interest of all of these, especially Fortune 500 companies that aren't run by founders anymore, is you have a professional set of managers who are just like, I just want to get in here and I want to keep the ship on course and I want to get my paycheck, right? Like, it's a big paycheck, but like, uh, you know, you you don't have the the same set of calculations that a, a founder does, right? Right. Sam Allman running OpenAI is a very different version than, than a professional CEO running the OpenAI. The CEO of Cruise running Cruise while still at GM is a very different version of Cruise than whatever VP is going to show up from GM and run Cruise. Like Elon, Elon's great. It's like, I don't have to compete with another founder right now. And, and so the, like, I don't think people on the outside having done it themselves or been involved in startups really appreciate the difference between a founder led business 
and especially a big business, like ignore startups, right? It's like you have to get to a certain scale. The the level of whether it's risk taking, drive, focus on the mission that a founder is going to bring to the table versus some professional manager, it it's it's just so rare. I mean, actually, in this case, Satya Nadella is is a rare exception of takes over one of the biggest companies, uh, you know, in in the global economy. And it had been kind of stagnating for a while for a variety of reasons. And he's completely transformed Microsoft, right? Microsoft is the second most valuable company in the world today and is firing on all cylinders. And and the foresight to do this, because I think they did the first investment in OpenAI in 2019. And and this is all coming from someone who um, didn't, didn't start that company. He worked his whole career up through the ranks in Microsoft. And so he, he's a rare exception. Whereas I think most, most people who are in, Fortune 500 companies. That's why they want to get the the board that looks like the United Nations because it just removes people criticizing them. So then they can go back to focus on getting their paycheck. And so it's it's a risk mit- uh, mitigation strategy, not a oh we think it makes better decisions. Anyone who says that doesn't actually believe it because one they know what the board does and the board actually isn't about like setting real strategic direction. It's I just want to have a group of people who don't want to fire me and I get my paycheck. Like that, that, that's, that's how most boards work. Founder led boards are different. And, and in this case, I would, whether I agree with it or not, the open AI board actually did a very rare thing in that they, they use board power to, to make a decision that at least at the time they thought was right. doesn't, doesn't happen like that. If you spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley, most of these boards are controlled by the founder. I, I think it's extremely rare to not have it be like that. Totally. And yeah, one thing that was crazy was the board had no economic interest in the company. Uh, just one of the many things that was, you know, um, very weird about the about the board and about the open AI situation. But yeah, just to close out the diversity thoughts, um, I am, to lay bare my position, I am pro-diversity and inclusion, but anti-equity. So I'm pro-initiatives like that that increase the pipeline, that increase, uh, you know, uh, things like Black Girls Code, you know, for, for, for all sorts of groups that, you know, uh, uh, in terms of get people more excited about technology and, and business uh, uh, on, on the pipeline, and then uh, sort of uh, initiatives that make it easier within reason for, for people to work at, at these companies and, and for people to be more mindful of, hey, you know, women are different than men. And thus, you know, you might want to um, not have a super bro culture, um, you know, uh, when you're, th- you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people at all, all areas of your company. But uh, I'm against the idea that, uh, you know, you have to hire a certain person because of the color of their skin or because of their their gender or because of who they have sex with. Uh, would company, running companies so hard as it is, is it's so stacked against you, uh, you know, for people who've been in those positions where you have to, you can't make the person who, uh, you can't hire the person who's the best suited for the role because of this kind of optics thing around percentages. You know how deflating th- that is and how just morally wrong that that, that feels. Um, that said, um, you know, support some of the, uh, initiatives on the DNI, not the, anyways, th- that's my position. Well, I would say, look, I'm against equality of outcome because it's never going to happen in the world. That's communism. And it ultimately ends up with people in firing lines. Like that's, that's my opinion. Um, equality of opportunity. I am all for increasing the amount of kind of opportunity or, or getting people to a closer level playing field. It's never going to happen by the way, right? We, there is no version of utopia. It is, there are always going to be uh, things that are unfair about life. 
And so the, the goal is how can we take the people who've got the worst set of cards dealt, right? You don't choose to be where you're, you're born or who your parents are or all that. And, and what can we do as society to say, hey, um, it, you actually do have a worse set of cards dealt, but there are going to be opportunities for you if, if for whatever reason, the way your brain works, that you you want to seek a different outcome, we're going to be able to support you. And, but But the important thing is there is that it, it results in you have to be determined yourself. And you have to, to put in the work, right? There is no version that it, that is handed to you. And I think the the challenge with all of this is, so uh, girls who code or, you know, specific race of, of uh, you know, girls who code, like, why can't we just have it be like you know, kids who code and, and, and actually focus on, start from the, the thing that is actually the biggest driver of success is socioeconomic, right? And it's specifically, it's, Huh? Like any kid with a with a one parent household, gonna have a way harder time, regardless of race, um, compared to anyone with two parent household. So let, let's let's go put programs in place, and it doesn't just have to be race based, right? It, it's it's actually that that's the, the the social situation you're in, or um, your your family has three kids and, and they make less than, I don't know, twenty thousand dollars a year. Like, let us have support for making sure that you have. Uh, you know, lunch at school or whatever the right set of programs are for that. But to me, that should be race blind, gender blind. Like it, it, it should really be around. It's just like you have a difficult situation as, as a kid, especially kids. And we're going to do everything we can to help the, the kids who have the difficult situations get a little closer to the, the ones who are fortunate in having a family that is willing to, to make sacrifices and live in a responsible way to, to put their kids forward. Because that's what many families choose to do. And what I think going back all the way to the beginning of this conversation, when you're trying to do all the right things and it feels like all that's happening in society is we're going to, we only want to help the people who are doing the wrong things. And because again, it's not the kid. It's the, the, the person is looking at, Hey, wait a second. I've made all these sacrifices for my kids and I'm, I'm not being an irresponsible parent and doing drugs and all this other stuff. Yet the person who is, you're you're giving them all of the support and I get nothing and I'm just trying to make make it that's where you're going to lean you're going to lean right because you want to blow this whole system up you say this is this is completely unfair like I, I've tried to make every right choice and I'm not asking for a handout but all I'm being told instead is that I'm an oppressor like it, you have to be crazy to not think that that is going to be a winning political position if you just tap into that group of people and say hey good schools housing that you can afford, right? And, and it's not, that's not affordable housing, by the way. That is, we're going to build more housing so you can buy a house. I think it's the single biggest issue that, that and part of it is we, our, our politicians are so old, but the fact that if you talk to most millennials in their 30s, the, the biggest disparity difference is if you, if you own a home versus you don't. But I can almost guarantee you that like of the people who don't, a, a very large percentage of them wish they could. That, that is a very big step in people's lives. And in a previous generation, that was a lot more accessible to most people across the, the political spectrum, across the racial spectrum, economic. And, and we've gotten to a place where now to own a home, you have to be rich. And, and so it's like, make it so that I can buy a home and, and create a sense of like, this is, this is mine. This is something for my family. I can build uh, you know, a life in, in, in this place rather than kind of being stuck in some apartment. And um and then there are always going to be people who live in apartments, right? But then the other one is is school. Like make school 
good. So that I'm a busy parent and I've got all the stress of being a parent, trying to put food on the table, pay for the home that you've hopefully made more affordable. And I don't want to have crazy schools. I want my school to be, it doesn't have to be a, you know, kind of like Phillips Andover level prep school. It's just like, I don't want them to be crazy. Right. It's like, I want my kid to be able to kind of like make progress, realize that algebra is important and it's not racist. Like that, that's what most people want. And I don't know. I, I'm just blown away that we we spend all this time on all these BS cultural war issues. And and this is why I always go back to DeSantis is that he had the opportunity to just down the middle, just be like, look, I kept Florida open. Kids went to school. The economy is booming. Uh, I, I have 60 percent of the vote. Like, look at look at my votes on all these minority people voting for me. Like, I, I, I best represent America. And instead, he's gone on this like crazy crusade of like, what weird, you know, Chris Rufo woke issue can I turn into some thing? And it, it just like it's completely backfired. That's not what people want. That's why people like Trump. Trump, Trump, yeah, dips into some of this stuff, but he really focuses on the economy from from what he's his message sending home is those people are taking advantage of you. And and not that he's even delivered that much to them, although the economy was really good for the, the country right. and especially for for black people in, in pre-COVID, right? And so COVID, I think, changed it. But but ultimately, it that is the issue. And and everyone wants to say that all these other issues actually factor into voters. It's like, no, it, it really comes down to is, do I feel like I'm going to be in a better position a few years from now? Is my family going to be in a better position? Are my kids going to have good schools? Like, that's the issue. Yeah. Um, one takeaway for me, and I'll, I'll get you out of here in a couple minutes, is this... Um, or one sort of thing that changed my mind is when I read Thomas Sowell and he talked about how inequality is just the state of the world. And so any, anyone claiming that, Hey, the goal is, is equal proportionate, you know, representation across all groups is, is a, um, is not being realistic because there are no groups that are equal, you know, Russians and French people and Polish people and like take any group, none of them are the same. <laughs> they all have different outcomes in, in, in different things. Um, and so to, why would they be equal? It's almost like there's a saying we used to say all the time, talent is universally distributed. Opportunity is not. Talent isn't evenly distributed, right? Like Facebook doesn't have the same talent as Walmart and San Francisco doesn't have the same talent as Nebraska and USA doesn't have the same talent as Indonesia, right? Like talent is actually not universally distributed. It's it, it, talent agglomerates. And so, um, you know, to, to expect any group to be equal is 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 just crazy on, on on the face of it, and should be just flat out uh, re- rejected. And people will say, "Oh, well, if 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 it's not equal, it's it's because you must think that they're inferior or something." But that that's where their brain goes. That that's not the re- why why are groups different? One, every, that's just the state of the world. Groups are, are different for all all sorts of uh, reasons. Many of them, you know, historical, just you know, accumulation of uh, of, of situations. But um, yeah, that, that's something that just changed the way I, I, I thought about the situation. The, the challenge is you have this thing called Christianity, which everyone is equal before God. The, 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 lessest, or, you know, the least of us and, and the, you know, the, the greatest of us, the kings, everyone is in the same boat. And so that's the, the, the kind of unifying principle for Western civilization and you have the founding document in this country is all men are created equal. Like, so, so it is, is a fundamental aspiration that we all have that, that equality is something that we are going to achieve one day, right. In, in this kind of messianic way. 
And I think it depends on your political leaning is I think a fundamental issue between left and right is a left leaning person believes there is a, a significant amount more equality we can add to the world through policies, through whatever. And I think a conservative person is like, yeah, there are probably improvements, uh, whether or not you believe in wanting to do them or not. But, but it starts with the fundamental Darwinian nature based unequal playing field. And, and, and that's just how world, you know, survival of the fittest. And it, and so can we improve things? Yes. Um, but will we ever achieve a utopia? No. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, l- l- let's wrap on that. I wanted to get into the Binance stuff, but let's do that ne- next week. Happy Thanksgiving. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.